The words de profundis are translated from Latin as from the depths. However, de profundis is also the letter written by Oscar Wilde between January and March of 1897 during his imprisonment in Reading Gaul to Bosey, or Lord Arthur Douglas. In total isolation, first in Pentonville and Wandsworth, and then in Reading Gaul, to which he was moved in November of 1895, while slept on a plank bed with no mattress. Allowed one hour's exercise a day, he walked in single file in the yard with other prisoners, but he was not allowed to communicate with them. He could not sleep, he was permanently hungry, and he suffered from dysentery. For the first month, Wilde was tied to a treadmill six hours a day, making an ascent, as it were, of 6,000 feet each day with five minutes rest for every 20 minutes. Towards the end of his sentence, the governor of the jail, Major Nelson, remarked to Wilde's friend Robert Ross in a rather foretelling manner, he looks well. But like all men unused to manual labour who receive a sentence of this kind, he'll be dead within two years. Indeed, Wilde was to die only three years after leaving prison. Wilde was later to praise Nelson, who had arrived at Reading in July of 1896, as the most Christ-like man I have ever met. Nelson was more liberal than his predecessor and was ready to relax the rules. In January 1897, when Wilde still had more than four months left to serve, he and Nelson came up with an ingenious idea. Whilst nothing in the prison regulations allowed prisoners to write plays, novels or essays, Inmates did have the permission to write letters. Under the previous regime, Wilde had written to solicitors and the Home Office, or in limited quantities, to his friends. But his letters were inspected and the writing materials removed as he finished. It was therefore Nelson's and Wilde's idea that he would never finish this letter of De Profundis, as the regulations did not specify how long a letter should be. And if a letter were not finished, then the prisoner, it was supposed, could be allowed to take it with him when he left the prison. Wilde addresses his letter to Lord Arthur Douglas, and in its first half he recounts his and Bosey's previous relationship and extravagant lifestyle, which eventually led to Wilde's conviction and imprisonment for gross indecency. He indicts both Lord Alfred's vanity and his own weakness in acceding to those wishes. In the second half, Wilde charts his spiritual development in prison and identification with Jesus Christ, whom he characterises as a romantic individualist artist. The letter begins, Dear Bosey, and ends, Your affectionate friend. By the time he wrote De Profundis, Wilde's love for Douglas had turned into a sort of bitterness, and the tone of his long letter manages to capture that bitterness as well as the extraordinary attachment he feels for Douglas. De Profundis, it should be said, is neither fair-minded nor consistent. It is at times bloated in its comparisons and rhetoric. Wilde, for example, compares himself to Christ. But there's also a beautiful, calm eloquence and a sense of urgency of things being said because there might not be the time or opportunity to say them in the future. Wilde's old skill at paradox and phrase-making was not there now merely to amuse his audience or mock his betters, but rather to kill his own pain and grief and attempt to communicate passionately and fiercely with his lover. He wrote not as art now, but as a desperately serious matter. The only beautiful things, as character Vivian told us in The Decay of Lying, which he wrote in 1890, are the things that do not concern us. 
Seven years later, in his cry from the depths, he writes of what mostly deeply concerned him. If there be one single passage that brings tears to the eyes, he says, weep as we weep in prison when the day, no less than the night, is set apart for tears. And then, in what is perhaps the most shocking sentence of the whole letter, he writes, the supreme vice is shallowness. Once upon a time, that would have been for him the supreme virtue. In De Profundis, Wilde accuses Douglas of distracting him from his art, of spending his money, of degrading him ethically, of constant scene-making, of deliberately and then thoughtlessly mistreating him. He goes over Douglas's bad behaviour in matters large and petty, often citing dates, places and details. The tone is fluent and sweeping, full of carefully controlled cadence and measured elegance. But the difference between this tone and Wilde's carefully nurtured flippancy is astonishing. It was like a tenor becoming a baritone, with a new range and depth and a new attention to feeling, but the old skills and tricks with pitch and paradox are still in place, despite his circumstances, or perhaps because of them. The letter cannot be read for its accurate account of their relationship, nor taken at its word. While some of the accusations are true, others are petty and foolish. But that's not the point. De Profundis has neither the informality of a personal letter, nor the distilled sound of a piece of imaginative writing. Its seductive, hurt and passionate tone places it in a category of its own. In all its urgency and ambiguous eloquence, it remains one of the greatest and most complex love letters ever written. It is fascinating to witness a change that comes over while to imaginative procedures as he writes. In the dim light of the prison cell and with the memory of his suffering, fresh, it's as though he seeks a new sort of tension between breathlessness and breath control. He writes long and highly wrought sentences, loving lists of adjectives and clever Latinate diction and elaborate punctuation, to be followed by a pure, plain statement full of the sharp, clipped tone of the Anglo-Saxon. Of course I should have got rid of you, he writes. The reader will want to know why he did not, and part of the power of the text comes from our knowledge that once Wilde was released, despite all his bitter feeling, he and Douglas attempted to live together again and resume their relationship, much to the horror of both Douglas's family and Wilde's wife. Upon his release, Wilde hands the manuscript to Robbie Ross, who had two typed copies made, one of which he sent to Douglas. In 1905, Ross published extracts from the text, and a fuller version in 1908. The complete version, however, was not published until 1949. I have been a fan of Oscar Wilde for many years. De Profundis, I put down to being one of the things that helped me change my life around. I've read it and read it and read it so many times. I'm going to read to you here some of my favourite excerpts from it. I hope you enjoy it.
poorer, wiser, more charitable, more kind, more sensitive than we are. In their eyes, prison is a tragedy in a man's life, a misfortune, a casualty, something that calls for sympathy in others. They speak of one who is in prison as one who is in trouble, simply. It is the phrase they always use, and the expression has the perfect wisdom of love in it. With people of our rank, it is different. With us, prison makes a man a pariah. I, and such as I am, have hardly any right to air and sun. Our presence taints the pleasures of others. We are unwelcome when we reappear. To revisit the glimpses of the moon is not for us. Our very children are taken away. Those lovely links with humanity are broken. We are doomed to be solitary while our sons still lived. We are denied the one thing that might heal us and help us, might bring balm to the bruised heart and peace to the soul in pain. And to all this has been added the hard, small fact that by your actions and by your silence and by what you have done and by what you have left undone, you have made every day of my long imprisonment still more difficult for me to live through. The very bread and water of prison fare you have by your conduct changed. You have rendered the one bitter and the other brackish to me. The sorrow you should have shared you have doubled. The pain you have sought to lighten you have quickened to anguish. I have no doubt that you did not mean to do so. I know that you did not mean to do so. It was simply that one really fatal defect of your character, your entire lack of imagination. And the end of it all is that I have to forgive you. I must do so. I don't write this letter to put bitterness into your heart, but to pluck it out of mine. For my own sake, I must forgive you. One cannot always keep an adder in one's breast to feed in one, nor rise up every night to sow thorns in the garden of one's soul. It will not be difficult at all for me to do so, if you help me a little. Whatever you did to me in old days, I always readily forgave. It did no good to you then. Only one whose life is without stain of any kind can forgive sins. But now when I sit in humiliation and disgrace, it is different. My forgiveness should mean a great deal to you now. Someday you will realise it. Whether you do so early or late, soon or not at all, my way is clear before me. I cannot allow you to go through life bearing in your heart the burden of having ruined a man like me. The thought might make you callously indifferent or morbidly sad. I must take the burden from you and put it in my own shoulders. I must say to myself that neither you nor your father, multiplied a thousand times over, could possibly have ruined a man like me, that I ruined myself, and that nobody great or small can be ruined except by his own hand. I am quite ready to do so. I am trying to do so, though you may not think it at the present moment. If I have brought this pitiless indictment against you, think what an indictment I bring without pity against myself. Terrible as what you did to me, was what I did to myself, was more terrible. I was a man who stood in symbolic relations to the art and culture of my age. 
I had realized this for myself at the very dawn of my manhood and forced my age to realize it afterwards. Few men hold such a position in their own lifetime and have it so acknowledged. It is usually discerned, if discerned at all, by the historian or the critic long after the both the man and his age have passed away. With me it was different. I felt it myself and made others feel it. Byron was a symbolic figure, but his relations were to the passion of his age and its weariness of passion. Mine were to something more noble, more permanent, of more vital issue, of larger scope. He then goes on to say later, Along with these things, I had things that were different. I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. I amused myself with being a flaneur, a dandy, a man of fashion. I surrounded myself with the smaller natures and the meaner minds. I became the spendthrift of my own genius, and to waste an eternal youth gave me a curious joy. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of my new sensations. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversely became to me in the sphere of passion. Desire at the end was a malady, or a madness, or both. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And therefore, what one has done in the secret chamber, one has some day to cry aloud on the housetops. I ceased to be the lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and did not know it. I allowed you to dominate me, and your father to frighten me. I ended in horrible disgrace. There's only one thing for me now. Absolute humility. Just as there's only one thing for you. Absolute humility also. You had better come down into the dust and learn it beside me. I have lain in prison for nearly two years. Out of my nature has come wild despair an abandonment to grief that was piteous even to look at. Terrible and impotent rage, bitterness and scorn, anguish that wept aloud, misery that could find no voice, sorrow that was dumb. I have passed through every possible mood of suffering. Better than Wordsworth himself, I know what Wordsworth meant when he said, Suffering is permanent, obscure and dark, and has the nature of infinity. But while there were times when I rejoiced in the idea that my sufferings were to be endless, I could not bear them to be without meaning. Now I find hidden away in my nature something that tells me that nothing in the whole world is meaningless, and suffering least at all. That something hidden away in my nature, like a treasure in a field, is humility. It's the last thing left in me, and the best the ultimate discovery at which I have arrived, the starting point for a fresh development. It has come to me right out of myself, so I know that it's come at a proper time. It could not have come before nor later. Had anyone told me of it, I'd have rejected it. Had it been brought to me, I'd have refused it. As I found it, I want to keep it. 
I must do so. It is the one thing that has in it the elements of life, of a new life, a vita nova for me. Of all things, it is the strangest. One cannot give it away and another may not give it to one. One cannot acquire it except by surrendering everything that one has. It is only when one has lost all things that one really knows that one possesses it. Now that I realize it is in me, I see quite clearly what I have got to do, what in fact I must do. And when I use such a phrase as that, I need not tell you I'm not alluding to any external sanction or command. I admit none. I am far more of an individualist than I ever was. Nothing seems to me of the smallest value except what one gets out of oneself. My nature is seeking a fresh mode of self-realization. That is all I'm concerned with. And the first thing that I have to got to do is to free myself from any possible bitterness or feeling against you. I'm completely penniless and absolutely homeless. Yet there are worse things in the world than that. I'm quite candid when I tell you that rather than go out from this prison with bitterness in my heart against you or against the world, I would gladly and readily beg my bread from door to door. If I got nothing from the house of the rich, I would get something at the house of the poor. Those who have much are often greedy. Those who have little always share. I would not a bit mind sleeping in the cool grass in summer, and when the winter came on shelter myself by the warm, close thatched rick, or under the penthouse of a green barn, provided I had love in my heart. The external things of life seem to me now of no importance at all. You can see to what intensity of individualism I have arrived, or I am arriving rather, for the journey is long, and where I walk there are thorns. Of course I know that to ask for alms on the highway is not to be my lot, and that if I ever lie in the cool grass at night time it will be to write sonnets to the moon. When I go out of prison Robbie will be waiting for me on the other side of the big iron studded gate, and he is a symbol of not merely of his own affection, but of the affection of many others besides. I believe I am to have enough to live on for about eighteen months at any rate. If I may not write any beautiful books, I may at least read beautiful books. And what joy can be greater? Continuing his theme of being a changed man, Wilde writes a bit later on, Things in themselves are of little importance. Have indeed, let us for once thank metaphysics for something that she has taught us. No real existence. The spirit alone is of importance. Punishment may be inflicted in such a way that it will heal, not make a wound, just as alms may be given in such a matter that bread changes to stone in the hands of the giver. What a change there is, not in the regulations, for they are fixed by iron rule, but in the spirit that uses them as its expression. You can realise when I tell you that I had been released last May, as I tried to be. I would have left this place loathing it, and every official in it with a bitterness of hatred that would have poisoned my life. I have had a year longer of imprisonment, but humanity has been in the prison along with us all, and now when I go out I shall always remember great kindness that I have received here from almost everybody. 
and on the day of my release I will give my thanks to many people. I'll ask to be remembered by them in turn. The prison system is absolutely and entirely wrong. I would give anything to be able to alter it when I go out. I intend to try. But there is nothing in the world so wrong but that the spirit of humanity, which is the spirit of love, the spirit of the Christ, who is not in churches, may make it, if not right, at least possible to be born without too much bitterness of heart. I know that also that much is waiting for me outside that is very delightful. From what St. Francis of Assisi calls my brother the wind and my sister the rain. Lovely things, both of them. Down to the shop windows and the sunsets of great cities. I made a list of all that still remains to me. I don't know where I should stop. For indeed God made the world just as for me as for anyone else. Perhaps I may go out with something I had not got before. I need not tell you to me that reformations and morals are as meaningless and vulgar as reformations in theology. But while to propose to be a better man is a piece of unscientific cant, to have become a deeper man is the privilege of those who have suffered. And such I think I have become. You can judge for yourself. If after I go out... A friend of mine gave a feast and did not invite me to it. I shouldn't mind a bit. I can be perfectly happy by myself. With freedom, books, flowers and the moon, who could not be happy? Besides, feasts are not for me anymore. I've given too many to care about them. That side of life is over for me. Very fortunately, I dare say. But if after I go out a friend of mine had a sorrow and refused to allow me to share it, I should feel it most bitterly. If he shut the doors of the house of mourning against me, I would be come back again, and again, and beg to be admitted, so that I might share in what I was entitled to share in. If he thought me unworthy, unfit to weep with him, I should feel it as the most poignant humiliation, as the most terrible mode in which disgrace could be inflicted on me. But that could not be. I have a right to share in sorrow. And he who can look at the loveliness of the world and share its sorrow and realise something of the wonder of both is in immediate contact with divine things. And has got as near to God's secret as anyone can get. Wilde also talks in De Profundis, of the things he must go through in his own mind to try and help himself to become a better person. I don't use this word rehabilitate a lot, in fact, I don't like the word at all, um, because it talks about somebody, or we talk about these days, rehabilitating a prisoner. When, as you can gather from De Profundis, and my sole belief is that no person can rehabilitate me. It's only me. It's in myself to do it. So he says here that neither religion, morality, nor reason can help me at all. Morality does not help me. I'm a born antimonian. I am one of those who are made for exceptions, not for laws. But while I see that there is nothing wrong in what one does, 
I see there's something wrong in what one becomes. It is well to have learned that. Religion does not help me. The faith that others give to what is unseen, I give to what one can touch and what one can look at. My gods dwell in temples made with hands. Within the circle of actual experiences, my creed made perfect and complete. Too complete it may be, for like many or all of those things who have placed their heaven in this earth, I have found in it not merely the beauty of heaven, but the horror of hell also. When I think about religion at all, I feel as if I would like to found an order for those who cannot believe, the confraternity of the fatherless, one might call it, where in an altar on which no taper burned, a priest in whose heart peace had no dwelling might celebrate with the unblessed bread and the chalice of empty wine. Everything to be true must become a religion. And agnosticism should have its ritual no less than faith. It has sown its martyrs, it should reap its saints. And praise God daily for having hidden himself from man. But whether it be faith or agnosticism, it must be nothing external to me. Its symbols must be of my own creating, only that is spiritual which makes its own form. If I may not find its secret within myself, I shall never find it. If I have not got it already, it will never come to me. An interesting part comes now. Reason does not help me. It tells me that the laws under which I am convicted are wrong and unjust laws, and the system under which I have suffered a wrong and unjust system. But somehow I've got to make both of these things just and right to me. And exactly as is in art, one is only concerned with what a particular thing is at a particular moment to oneself. So it is all also in the ethical evolution of one's character. I have got to make everything that happened to me good for me. The plank bed, the loathsome food, the hard rope shredded into oakum till one's fingertips grow dull with pain, the menial offices with which one day begins and finishes, the harsh orders that routine seems to necessitate, the dreadful dress that makes sorrow grotesque to look at, the silence, the solitude, the shame. Each and all of these things I have to transform into a spiritual experience. There's not a single degradation of the body which I must not try and make into a spiritualization of the soul. I want to get to the point when I shall be able to say, quite simply and without affectation, that the two great turning points in my life were when my father sent me to Oxford and when society sent me to prison. I will not say that it is the best thing that could have happened to me, for that phrase would savour too great bitterness towards myself. I would sooner say, or hear it said of me, that I was so typical a child of my age that in my perversity, and for that perversity's sake, I turned to the good things of my life to evil, and the evil things of my life to good. What is said, however, by myself or by other matters, little. The important thing the thing that lies before me, the thing that I have to do or be for the brief remainder of my days once maimed, marred and incomplete, is to absorb my, into my nature all that has been done to me, to make it a part of me, to accept it without complaint, fear or reluctance. The supreme vice is shallowness. Whatever is realised 
is right. When I first was put into prison, some people advised me to try and forget who I was. It was ruinous advice. It is only by realising what I am that I have found comfort of any kind. Now I am advised by others to try on my release to forget that I have ever been in prison at all. I know that would be equally fatal. It would mean that I would always be haunted by an intolerable sense of disgrace. And that those things that are meant much for me as for anyone else. The beauty of the sun and the moon, the pageant of the seasons, the music of daybreak and the silence of great nights, the rain falling through the leaves or the dew creeping over the grass and making it silver, would all be tainted for me and lose their healing power and the power of communicating joy. To reject one's own experiences is to arrest one's own development. To deny one's own experiences is to put a lie into the lips of one's own life. It is no less than a denial of the soul. For just as the body absorbs things of all kinds, things common and unclean no less than those that the priest or revision has cleansed and converts them into swift or strength, into the play of beautiful muscles and the moulding of fair flesh, into the curves and colours of the hair, the lips, the eye. So the soul, in its turn, has its nutritive functions also, and can transform into noble moods of thought and passions of high import, what in itself is base, cruel and degrading, nay more, may find in these its most august modes of assertion, and can often reveal itself most perfectly through what it was intended to desecrate or to destroy. The fact of my having been the common prisoner of a common goal I must frankly accept. And curious as it may sound to you, one of the things that I shall have to teach myself is not to be ashamed of it. I must accept it as a punishment. And if one is ashamed of being punished, one might as well just never have been punished at all. Of course, there are many things of which I was convicted that I had not done. But then there are many things, a still great number of things in my life for which I was never indicted at all. And as for what I have said in this letter, that the gods are strange and punish us for what is good and humane in us, as much as for what is evil and perverse, I must accept the fact that one is punished for the good as well as for the evil that one does. I have no doubt that it's quite right one should be. It helps one, or should help one, to realise both, and not to be too conceited about either. And if I then am not ashamed of my punishment, as I hope not to be, I shall be able to think and walk and live with freedom. Many men on their release carry their prison along with them into the air, hide it as a secret disgrace in their hearts, and at length, like poor poisoned things, creep into some hole and die. It is wretched that they should have to do so, and it is wrong, terribly wrong of society that it should force them to do so. Society takes upon itself the right to inflict appalling punishments on the individual, but it also has the supreme vice of shallowness and fails to realise what it has done. When the man's punishment is over, it leaves him to itself. That is to say, it abandons him at the very moment when its highest duty towards him begins. It is really ashamed of its own actions and shuns those whom it has punished. As people shun the creditor whose debt they cannot pay or one on whom they have inflicted an irreparable and irredeemable wrong 
I claim on my side that if I realise what I have suffered, society should realise what it has inflicted upon me, and there should be no bitterness on either side. Of course, I know that from one point of view, things will be made more difficult for me than for others. Must indeed, by the very nature of the case, be, be made so. The poor thieves and outcasts who are imprisoned here with me are in many respects more fortunate than I am. The little weighing grey city or green field that saw their sin is small. To find those who know nothing of what they have done, they need go no further than a bird might fly in the twilight before dawn, and dawn itself. But for me, the world is shriveled to hand's breadth, and everywhere I turn my name is written on rocks and lead. For I have come not from obscurity into the momentary notoriety of crime, but for some sort of eternity of fame, for a sort of eternity of infamy, and sometimes seem to myself to have shown, if indeed a required showing, that between the famous and the infamous there is but one step, if so much as one. But I must learn how to be happy. Once I knew it, or I thought I knew it, by instinct. It was always springtime once in my heart. My temperament was akin to joy. I filled my life to the very brim with pleasure, as one might fill a cup to the very brim with wine. Now I am approaching life in a completely new standpoint. And even to conceive happiness is often extremely difficult for me. I remember during my first time at Oxford reading Pater's Renaissance. That book which has had such a strange influence over my life. How Dante places low in the inferno those who willfully live in sadness. Although Wilde talks a lot about being an agnostic or agnosticism, he does spend a lot of time in De Profundis talking about Christ. He says, To live for others as a definite self-conscious aim was not his creed. It was not the basis of his creed. When he says, forgive your enemies, it is not for the sake of the enemy, but for one's own sake that he says so. And because love is more beautiful than hate. In his entreaty to the young man, whom when he looked on he loved, sell all that thou hast and give it to the poor. It is not of the state of the poor that he's thinking, but of the soul of the young man, the lovely soul that wealth was marring. In his view of life, he is one with the artist who knows that by the inevitable law of self-perfection the poet must sing, and the sculptor must think in bronze, and the painter must make a world mirror for his moods, as surely and as certainly as a hawthorn must blossom in spring, and the corn burn to gold at harvest time, and the moon in her ordered wanderings change from shield to sickle, and from sickle to shield. Well, last paragraph of De Profundis says this. For yourself, I have but this last thing to say. Do not be afraid of the past. If people tell you that it is irrevocable, do not believe them. The past, the present and the future are but one moment in the sight of God, in whose sight we should try and live. Time and space, succession and extension are merely accidental conditions of thought. 
the imagination can transcend them and move in a free sphere of ideal existences. Things also are in their essence what we choose to make them. A thing is, according to the mode in which one looks at it. Where others, says Blake, see but the dawn coming over the hill, I see the sons of God shouting for joy. What seemed to the world and to myself, my future, I lost irretrievably when I let myself be taunted into taking the action against your father. Had, I dare say, lost it, lost it really long before that. What lies before me is my past. I have to make myself look on that with different eyes, to make the world look on it with different eyes, to make God look on it with different eyes. This I cannot do by ignoring it or slighting it or praising it or denying it. It is only to be done by fully accepting it as an inevitable part of the evolution of my life and character, by bowing my head to everything that I have suffered. How far I am away from the true temper of soul, this letter and its changing uncertain moods, its scorn and bitterness, its aspirations and its failure to realise those aspirations, shows you quite clearly. But do not forget in what a terrible school I am sitting at my task. And incomplete and perfect as I am, from me you may still have much to gain. You came to me to learn the pleasure of life and the pleasure of art. Perhaps I am chosen to teach you something more wonderful, the meaning of sorrow and its beauty. Your affectionate friend, Oscar Wilde. Wilde was released from jail just three or four months after he wrote that letter. As I said earlier, upon his release, he gave a copy to Robbie Ross. He asked for two copies to be made. One to be sent to Alfred Douglas and the other to be retained. Still not known to this day whether Douglas ever received it. In a twist of fate, Douglas and Wilde met up again in France in 1898, where they tried to resume their most tumultuous affair. When Wilde was released from prison in 1897, the average length of lifespan of an individual leaving prison was only to be two years. Wilde beat the statistics. He lived a full three years. He died in France in 1900 of meningitis. I hope you've enjoyed this. Probably not as much as I've enjoyed reading it. Thank you for listening.